Welcome to the School of Rock Bottom podcast with Oliver Mason. I'm an actor, a voiceover artist, and a mental health coach. And it's these careers and passions combined that have given birth to this podcast. Those working across the creative industries are three times more likely to have a mental health problem. And those working in performing and entertainment are twice as likely to suffer from depression and up to 15 times more likely to have an anxiety disorder. So on this podcast, I invite really incredible creatives who have lived through a rock bottom but have survived. And it's really important that these stories are told so people know that there is always hope and there is always a way out. I'm so excited today, not just because she's got an Arsenal top on, um, but I have got the absolutely fantabulous... How's that? <laughs> but, uh, yeah. <laughs> Nicole Hall, which, which I'm delighted about. Um, and what I'm going to do, Nicole, before we kind of dive straight in, is I'm just going to give the listeners and viewers uh, a little blurb, a little, a little bio. Um, so Nicole is a professional actor and former close-up card magician. Having graduated from Manchester Metropolitan University with a degree in acting, she was launched straight into the television industry, playing a semi-regular role in BBC One's Casualty. Other TV credits include Channel 5 Teen sitcom Harry and Kosh, and Crime Watch UK. Early last year, she played the lead role in a production at the Almeida Theatre in London, focusing on the life of women's centre workers. She wrapped up 20, uh, 2022, co-starring in a film about hope, which is due to be released this autumn. Nicole's close-up uh, magic... I'll start that again. Nicole's close-up card magic has been showcased at BFI Southbank, Café de Paris London, Home House Private Members Club Marlebone and Century Private Members Club Soho, to name a few. Nicole's more recent work has spotlighted mental health, addiction and survival. She is co-founder of an emerging black women-led theatre company called Nubian Co Hearts. Have I said that right? Yes, that on. Right. Brilliant. And is currently working on a play which exposes these hard-hitting themes and similar gritty topics watch this space nicole says so of course all of the links to all of this amazing work will obviously be um in the show notes nicole thank you so much for coming on today my absolute pleasure ollie i really really appreciate it it's great to see you as well it's been a little while yeah four years Um, maybe longer yeah four years i think so pre-covid that's insane um i'm really grateful to have you on nicole because you've got the most incredible story um maybe the hardest bit of this whole podcast is how i start mm-hmm. i know you're a fan of the podcast so i am indeed that. i'm literally fangirling right now it's only worth 10p okay I, I have tried to sell it before <laughs> yeah. that's, that's i'll keep I, it for myself I got. um maybe the hardest bit about this podcast or you know is that i just like to get straight in there mm. um and i'm going to ask you if you if you don't mind, um, to share your rock bottom moment. Mm. I appreciate there might be more than one. Mm. Um, and we're going to kind of start there and then, and then, and then we're going to actually going to go back today, um, and kind of work it through. Yeah. Okay. So there are several rock bottom moments. There's a great saying that a rock bottom is like a piece of cardboard, right? And you're standing on it and you pee through it and it falls. So, you know, for me, Every time I felt I hit a rock bottom, thinking this, it can't get any worse. It did. Um, an occasion would be, <clears throat> I guess the ultimate rock bottom for me was seeing the look 
the person I love the most, you know, my mum's face, you know, whilst I was in active addiction, um, that feeling of hopelessness, you know, she didn't know what to do, which way to turn, you know, with all that she has been through and continues to, to, to work through daily with my, my younger disabled sister, you know, and there was the, the rock of the family, the eldest daughter that had broken, you know, and one occasion in particular was when um, I came home after a bender and benders were very close together at the end of my drinking. Um, I became an around the clock drinker. I woke up to drink, to fall asleep, to wake up to drink again. My whole existence was to existence was to numb. So, and I'd panic when I'd see the bottle half empty um, and it didn't start that way, but that's how it ended. And I remember sneaking out the house at the end of my drinking. I, I lived at home. Um, I had nowhere else to go. That was after them chucking me out and bringing me back in. And it was about four in the morning. I think my mum was going to the bathroom and I tried to do that sneak out because we're upstairs. And I was face to face with her rattling. She's like, I need, I need a drink, you know, um, and she looked at me and it was as though the life drained from her eyes, the realization for her that my daughter's slipping through my fingers. I think emotionally, because there were several physical rock bottoms, but emotionally that sort of was the pinnacle of, I can't go on like this. Um, you know, there were arrests, waking up in police cells, that beautiful blue mat that I always equated to the primary school mats in PE, you know, it was just wanting to leave and to drink. And it got to a point where I hated the stuff. Now that went from it being my oxygen, my lover, my best friend, my everything. It came before everything and anything. Um, and I'd do whatever it took in order to get that. I don't know if I've been specific enough, Oli, but the one that comes to mind, as I said, going back to just seeing my mum's face, really, really, yeah, that's, that's one I pull from the bag often because that's where I decided to get help. Mm. Um, and I think it, it, was, it was almost as though I was looking in the mirror, like seeing my mum and seeing how broken she was through my actions, my, the state I was in, you know, mm. it revealed to me just how deep I had fallen and um, how far in I was. And yeah. Nicole, thank you so much yeah. for sharing that with me. And, you know, I obviously know your story and the listeners don't, and you are, a miracle that you're sat in front of me i think um because i know the places that you've been mm -hmm. um and it's incredible isn't it when you think about a rock bottom moment a lot of people sort of picture i think something that's all about themselves which which obviously <laughs> is part of what you spoke about but actually it was that mirror of your mum's reaction that, mm -hmm. that kind of was the final dagger it, it sounds yeah. you know from what you've said um, I know on this journey we're going to go on 
during this podcast, you know, there's obviously you've already touched on it now. There's going to be talk about alcohol and, and addiction. I think love addiction as well and, yeah. and possibly gambling and, and other things might come up. Mm-hmm. I don't normally do this on on this podcast, but I hope you don't mind if I um, do this with you. A lot of the work I do is about where people are currently and where they need to go. Um, there's people far more qualified than me that, that, that go back into people's past and childhood, although I do that a little bit. Um, specifically around the addiction stuff that you just mentioned, there's a bit of a debate around genetics and environment. Mm-hmm. I wondered if we could go back to your childhood. Um, is there anybody in your in your family that, that has any kind of mental health conditions that you're aware of? Yeah. Um, so I, I'm not very close to them, but I do know on my father's side that there are cousins that have personality disorders. I'm not sure specifics. Um, and yeah, a third cousin as well. I know two in particular, um, one that's been admitted a lot in and out of institutions. Um, also on my mum's side, actually now, and this is, wow, I've, I've never discussed this. This isn't, this is, yeah. Um, I have an aunt who had a breakdown and she's currently, I think she will be living there forever um, in, a, in an institution for, for mental health. So there is, it's not a running thread mm. and touch wood, it's not any immediate family. But distant cousins definitely um, have mental health. I don't like the word problems. <laughs> I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. I, I, know, I know exactly what I mean. I think you've explained with it. Mental health. Yeah. Um, and obviously, there's a lot of a lot of research around um, you know this debate around you know genetics versus sort of environment, mm. and um, you know there's no specific. Um, you know, addiction gene, but there are genes that can be passed down, which make people more likely, um, you know, to, to, to self-medicate, for example, around stress and things like mm. that. Um, I appreciate the next question is um, really difficult. Um, is there anything within your upbringing that, that you can pinpoint that might have played a role in where you got to in that rock bottom moment that you just described? Absolutely. Um, I guess, you know, from a, so from a very young age, I I was first born of three, um, into a loving family, loving home. Um, around the age of four or five, I experienced childhood trauma. Um, and at that age, trust was broken. So it was at the hands of someone that I should be able to trust. And um, I often, if ever speaking about this, I often speak about my coping mechanism, which was these invisible black curtains, a bit like these. Um, And whatever was really happening, happened behind the curtains. So all the reality of my life happened behind these curtains. And whatever I presented in front of the curtains was fantasy. I guess that was my first drug fantasy so I created this character in me um which 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 served me it helped me stay safe 
it helped me stay just so far from you or from anyone because I knew then you couldn't hurt me if you don't experience the real me you can't hurt me um and that was for many years that was from around the age of four I'd say so around the age of 10 pre it was pre-secondary school mm. and I shut off from the world so I became these characters in order to keep myself safe I became what I felt you wanted me to be almost a chameleon right mm. so if I felt you wanted me to be the clown I'd be the clown um the caretaker I'd be the caretaker the mother figure the mother figure this was at a very young age um and then at the age of six, my sister was born and she was born with one year to live, two holes in her heart, um, severely developmentally delayed. So naturally all the attention was on her. Um, but it fit me really well because I became that caretaker. Um, and I felt safe in that. I knew my role and it took the focus off of me. So there was no way at the time for me to speak about what was happening behind these invisible curtains to anyone I felt um so that was a hugely significant point in my life that changed the course of Nicole I'd say mm -hmm. and who and Nicole's development and who Nicole is felt and was because I became mm -hmm. which served me later on in life with the industry I've chosen to, yeah, sure. you know, to be in. Yeah, does that answer? Hundred percent answers it. And I hope anyone who's listening or watching this is doing a huge round of applause for you right now because to, you know, have not seen each other in a number of years. We've just grabbed a coffee. We've just come into a podcast studio. I've asked you incredibly personal questions in a public arena, and you've mm -hmm. just absolutely spilled to help people. You know, I'm sitting in front of an absolute legend here in my eyes. Uh, like, thank you for sharing that. It's so unbelievably generous of you. Um, you, you mentioned fantasy and this uh, as a way to cope with these kind of black curtains that I think you referred to them as. Um, how long? How long did you use that as a tool to cope? And when did that tool stop working? Great question, Ollie. Um, it stopped working when I found drink. Well, no it was replaced by the drink right so it just thinking about the amount of energy that that took like in hindsight but it was like brushing my teeth you know um so at around the age of 13 when i hit secondary school 12 13 i had my first drunk and for those who don't know the word drunk it was my first experience of being drunk mm. um and instantly I just remember that feeling of it was like the ultimate exhale for me those black curtains went away those characters went away and I thought I found my my solution I was like where has this been all my life you know I don't need to pretend I can be so those black curtains disappeared with my first drunk now <laughs> As I progressed with the drinking and in addiction, they came back full force, those black curtains. They they weren't removed because I hadn't dealt with it, you know. Mm. So, yeah, just as quickly as, as it dissipated, it came back full-fledged and I didn't know what to do. So I was battling with 
these invisible black curtains as well as the alcohol and it was just a whirlwind of mm. escapism and killing myself really mm. um and i think there was mm. i i don't want to fill in your blanks because it's not my place to do so but i'd imagine as well there were other things going on that you were working through as a as a teenager or, or as a young adult yeah. uh, you you mentioned the the incident when you were four or five but obviously that's a pivotal moment but were there other things going on that that the fantasy and the and the alcohol was helping you cope with yeah happening then definitely so from an earlier age and i i, I want to stress this Ollie, because a lot of people have this misconception of being gay and it being off the back of childhood trauma or incidences in life pre the age of four I felt an unusual attraction to women which I denied for so long um and in fact I was looking over for a long time I couldn't look at photos of me as a child it took a very long time because I was it was almost as though I was heartbroken for that person that didn't know any different it took a long time I'd say to five years ago um, and I was looking at an old nursery photo and there was a girl in it and I'd scratched out her face. And that was at the age of two, I was in nursery, two to four, right? So I had these unexplainable feelings and, and attractions to this, to this girl at that age and I couldn't explain it. Um, I was an altar girl from the age of... I'm going to throw out an age, nine, ten. Did you say alter? Alter, yeah. So what does, what does that mean? I'm not aware of that phrase. Um, so I, in the Church of England, I was blessing the congregation. I hold the candle. <laughs> I don't know the, the official word for it. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I was also a theorifer, which blessed the congregation with incense. Wow. So I was quite heavily involved in church. Mm. Um, and I always had this battle with if I am attracted to women and I'm gay, um, I will go to hell. That was this. Wow. So there was that battle from, from young. Um, so that was, yeah, that was a significant battle of mine and another secret, another mm. thing behind the curtains. Right. I was lucky enough to have fallen into a group. My best friend from, yeah, a good friend of mine um, came out at the age of 16. And it was almost like, oh my gosh, it's a reality, mm -hmm. you know. Um, at that age, I kept it safe. So I said, I am attracted to women, but I will always marry a man eventually. Right. Yeah. And at the age of 17, I, I met my first girlfriend um, and that was my longest relationship for four years. And I think things, things unraveled from there. So that taste of freedom was there. Mm. I didn't know that bit actually about, mm. about um, what a big role the church of England played in your childhood. I know, I know that you've got, you know, a, a deep faith in God. Uh, mm. You know, I'm aware of that, but I didn't know the backstory. Mm. Um, I don't want to kind of go off topic, but I think mm. it's so important to to talk about, I think, and I think it will help a lot of people 
that are listening to this. Um, what was it like then you're coming out? What, what was the environment like sort of from a, from a religious point of view and a, I guess from a family point of view, mm. so you might not want to share about that. And I mm. appreciate that, but I just wondered how that went because you're describing um, a, a situation where it, it sounds incredibly difficult. Mm. Was that how it turned out? My family are amazing, <laughs> right? Just had to put it out there. They're not overly religious, like they have beliefs. My idea of, I don't know where it came from, to be honest. It may have been through passing or speaking to other people, but that idea of going to hell is a sin and all of that, you know, you hear it, right? Mm. Coming out to my parents, that was my ultimate goal. I thought once, if my parents know, I don't care who knows and I don't care what anyone else think, you know, whoever, what anyone else yeah, what anyone else think. And um, the drink actually enabled me to come out to my parents. Mm. So I was in this relationship. I was about a year into the relationship. They'd often quiz me about this relationship. They thought, you know, you, you two are very close. What's going on there? And I was deadly against it. Nothing. You know, it was it was as though they'd asked me whether I'd done something bad. Um, and I went to university at the age of 18 so I was, I was in Manchester and my hometown is London, right? Mm. So I was far enough, safe enough to, to deal with any repercussions. And I remember I was, it was fresh as week and I called, I came out to my classmates for a game of never have I ever. And I thought, well, these people know I've, it's not respectful that I haven't spoken to my parents about this. So I called my mum probably three or four drinks in and I told her and she said I already knew Nick and for me I broke down it was all those years of the fear of being shunned and I you know I know I've, I've got very close friends who have experienced that and so I'm not denying just how lucky I have been mm. to have that response yeah I'm not quite sure how my dad found out. I don't know whether my, I think my mum told my dad. Right. And my dad made a joke. Um, I won't say it here. <laughs> <laughs> Dads like to do that. Now. Yes, he does. But they, the ultimate thing was that they want their daughter to be happy. Yeah. You know, this really makes my heart sing because I don't yeah. know this part of your story. I've never, yeah. never asked you about it. It's never yeah. really come up in any conversations we've had. And I'm so pleased that that is the end yeah. of that little, yeah. um, well, not little, it's that huge journey there. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you for sharing that, Nicole, yeah, as well. Um, so we're kind of now at university, I suppose, mm -hmm. and obviously you've gone there to um, to pursue acting. Yep. Um, you alluded to it earlier that this idea of fantasy and the curtain and that acting actually was a, like you say, quite a quite a useful thing to do because yeah. you could literally hide behind characters. Is that is that too an easy um, conclusion to make that that was that was that the main appeal of acting? I guess so. It was the only thing I was good at at school. Right. Um, that and art. Anything I could escape in, right? Um, I, my background, my family background, a uh, family of creatives, especially on my dad's side. So musicians, oh, wow. DJs, um, actors as well. 
So I think it is in the DNA somewhere. So if I need some entertainment at a party, I've got to bring you up and you can get your pizza. <laughs> there you go, me. we'll bring you down. You want the singer, you want the magician, you want the, you know, it's it's in it, nature, nurture again, it's definitely in the in the blood. Um, and for me, it was a form of therapy. You know, I could express myself through character. And again, it wasn't the real me, so it's safe. So if I wanted to break down playing a character that's broken, I could do that. And I could actually do it through my own truth. Um, if I wanted to be the comedian, if I wanted to, you know, it it was my therapy and it was what I was good at. And it's what I enjoyed. Mm. I think that combination just made it right for me. Yeah. Um, and was alcohol mm. sort of serving you well during that time? Was it kind of doing what it said on the tin? Yeah. I guess all the stereotypical stuff, you know, helping you, you know, go out, have a good time, yeah. you, you know, the, the ways that people normally use it. What, when did it start to become a sort of self-medicating exercise for you? Was it during that time at uni or was it was it later? It was self-medicating in order for me to connect, which is ironic because it's the biggest disconnect. Right. So off stage, out of the structured class, you know, I was very shy and I had huge personalities around me. I, I was a mouse at uni. Um, I didn't enjoy it. That's the one thing about drama class, right? There's a lot of big personalities. Huge personalities. Sometimes that, well, that was me back in the day as yeah. well on occasion. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember specific, it's a significant moment again with, with the alcohol. I remember a classmate saying to me, we were on a night out and I'd be the class clown when I had a drink in me saying to me, you're so fun, Nick, when you drink. And for me, that was like, well, that's it then. That reaffirms every fear I had about myself. I'm no one without a drink. Mm. So that was my crutch. In order to go out, I drink and I drink. I could never have one. So I drink. I still don't know whether, well, I do now, but at that time, whether I drank to recreate that first drink, that first buzz, Wherever. I think it was a combination of that and to keep that, the inhibitions away, you know, low so I could be. Mm. Um, so it was, yeah, in terms of self-medicating, post-uni, I got the job of my, so I, I held, I, I, I put so much emphasis on having the partner of my dreams, having the job of my dreams, having the money, everything right mm. um in order for me to be happy and i was lucky enough to leave uni and get all of that but i was still desperately unhappy it's casualty your first job it was my very first job out of uni. and harry and kosh was that earlier that was pre-uni yeah pre-uni. that was wow. pre-uni so you, you'd gone into uni already having worked which a lot yeah I'm, I'm guessing a lot of people on your course hadn't experienced yet so you you yeah. know um and how 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 long were you doing casualty for? How long did that last? So it ran from two thousand. I was in from two thousand and five to two thousand and nine, I believe. Wow! But it wasn't. It was a semi. semi so I played. But that's still yeah, like... I don't want to plug what I played. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a role that it wasn't. An, it was a police. I played a police officer. Um, I so I wasn't always in it, but it was quite a long run between um, filming. I was working in sales. Yeah. Um, yeah, had flexible roles like sales jobs and yeah, so it was quite a long run and I was very lucky. I was sort of the dark horse because I was that quiet thing mm. at uni 
when I it got to my showcase, um, I experienced having the most attention from directors, agents, casting directors. And it was as though, you know, I loved that buzz. It felt like the buzz I got from the drink. It took me away from myself and my core and the turmoil that was happening inside. Mm. Um, and I had the buzz of this new partner and the job of my dreams and the money. And, but as I said, I was desperately unhappy inside. Mm. I'd close the curtains at night, literal curtains now. Yeah. And feel desperately unhappy. And how did you cope with that sort of that in out type feeling that a lot of us creatives have where, you know, one minute you're on set, you're playing this part, then you're in sales, then you're back on set playing this part. I think to anybody with or without any kind of mental health stuff going on, that would be incredibly stressful. How did you manage that period? Was it just exciting? Were you in sales going, well, actually, I'm going to be back on set soon. Yeah. So it's all good. Or was it, yeah. was it, how was it to navigate that? I don't even think I thought about it. Mm. I think it was so, it was, and that, that's, that was the trajectory, traje I can't say the word trajectory it's sort of, of my, of my life, because what mm. I would do is keep going until I hit a wall. Right. And that was the case with everything in my life. I would be at full speed until my body gave in or my mind gave in. Right. So with being in sales, I, I had a national role. So I was in Scotland you know, to, to Cambridge, to Brighton, you know, and then I'd get a call from my agent. You're, you need to be up in, um, Bristol for two weeks filming. Okay. Block that in. I I just kept going, but I, I that was my escape again, yeah. just like with, with the new relationships, with the new jobs, with the new, you know, with the drink, it was all an escape until it stopped. And mm -hmm. so it, the only time it would stop would be pause, shall I say, would be at night mm. when my head was on the pillow. And when did you start yeah. to sort of break down? And when I say mm. breakdown, I, I mean, I mean, I guess physically, because I know there was a period where it kind of brought you to a halt, right? Mm. Where you kind of things really sort of stopped for you in the sense that I think it really took over. Yeah. And did you get to a place where you sort of stopped functioning with yeah. it? I, yeah. I, I literally, the only way I can describe it. So in 2010, I hit a wall. Um, work was drying out. And I'd go to auditions not present. I'd mm. go to auditions with the pound signs in mind. I wasn't connecting to my the scripts. I remember I was in quite a toxic relationship at the time where there was a lot of jealousy around my work and why do I have to be there when you should be here with me? So I wouldn't learn scripts and that took over. Relationships for me were another addiction, I'd say, mm. you know, they became my everything, just like the drink. Um, and at that time I, I part ways with my agent and I said, I'm going into banking that was soul destroying for me, you know, no offense to bankers. That's, you know, if that's what you love to do. Bank. I don't know why. I can't imagine me in a bank. What was I thinking? I was. I wish you were my bank manager. <laughs> you might let me if you could. All I did. Go back into banking. Yes. <laughs> yes. It, well, it was playing a role, but I thought mm. that I said to my agent at the time and it was completely going against my heart, but I said, I need to get a proper job. Right. And I probably heard that from someone. Um, I need consistency. I can't, deal with the to and fro in anymore 
and we had quite a few discussions and then I left. I think that's where things spiraled for me. At that time, I broke up with my partner and I had nothing to hide behind. I was working in a bank where a lot of creatives came in. Mm. It was in the centre of London around all the theatre district. So all I was doing daily was speaking to these people about performing. That's the only thing, the highlight of my day. Um, mm. So I'm going off topic here, but yes. I, th- so, I, I think it's key though. And I think, yeah. I think a lot of performers who are watching and listening to this will, will resonate yeah. that that is very, very stressful. You know, yeah. some people, they sort of get a, um, you know, I was going to say proper job, but it's not it's a proper not, job. Nah, you know, nah, that's, nah. that's the, um, that's what other people outside the industry call it. A proper yeah. job. But, you know, um, I think the term people use now is a muggle job, uh-huh. which I don't understand because <laughs> I'm not into Harry Potter. But uh, I had to look it up what it meant. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a job that pays the bills, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet your passion is in, you know, whatever your creativity is, whether it's music or, or acting or anything else. Mm-hmm. And that kind of struggle and that, you know, it causes a lot of problems for people and people did obviously leave the industry over it mm. because they, they're seeing friends get the house and, and doing all of that. Um, and that's a pain that I can really relate to. Yeah. And I've been through, um, you talk about, you mentioned love addiction there. Yeah. And that being another one, um, for someone that doesn't really understand the term, what does that, what does that mean to you? Cause I guess I'm, I'm got this idea of, getting the high of a, a relationship, you know, falling in love. And then when that high is worn, worn off, the relationship breaks down, repeat. Mm-hmm. Is is that a correct way of looking at it? Spot on. It, is it? Spot on. Um, I know it, it doesn't sound that way when I say my first relationship was four years long and then my second one was three years. But I had other things in those. They were my two longest relationships ever to date. And... With those two relationships, I had a lot of other things going on. So I had that quick fix, that newness, that honeymoon period in and around those relationships. Um, After my second relationship, I guess my longest relationship had been a year tops. I craved, just as I did with the drink, that high, that hit that fix it it was an out of body experience you know that honeymoon period we get where Mm. it's like oh I'm flying you know and I I often said to myself how do how do you sustain this feeling Mm. that's all I want that out of body experience um so that was yeah from from the age of 23 onwards that was what a relationship looked like to me Mm. falling in love often with unobtainable people. And I say that because if I was to go for someone that wasn't obtainable, if there was any form of rejection or if it was to break down, then that would have been on the cards anyway. So it was safe, which is looking at it today is, wow, that's self-destruction really, isn't it? Mm. and I suppose it's tied mm. back to that thought that you had when you were younger that you're, you're not good enough and that you needed that drink. You know, someone said mm-hmm. you at uni as well later, mm. you know, um, you're fun when you have a drink. Mm. It sounds like a little bit of low self-esteem there. You know, use the word unattainable. Yeah. I mean, 
you're a cat. What are you talking about? Oh, stop it. Come on. <laughs> but, you yeah. know, it seems like that's tied up into that. This yeah. on some belief that there'd be somebody that's sort of higher up, which, yeah. which is not true. It's not true. Yeah. And also that thing of, again, with the being a chameleon, being what I felt you wanted me to be, all of that, it ties up with, Are you trying to yeah. say that you wouldn't, that you couldn't be authentic in a relationship? I guess not. Because of that. Yeah. It was, I was playing a role. The feelings were real yeah. or as real as I knew them to be. Yeah. Um, the care, the love, the affection, all of that was there. But I molded myself into, that's, wow, you just made me think. And I don't know if it's a common thing, but at the start of a relationship, you want to give your best self, right? And then, sure. so I think that's common, but yeah. I try to sustain that throughout. So mm. I'd be what I felt they wanted me to be. And that was, wasn't sustainable. Mm. And so usually the reason a relationship broke down was because I broke down, the wall broke down and there was nothing there because I had no sense of who Nicole was which I didn't understand at the time. Mm. And I'd often blame it on we weren't meant to be anyway because it wasn't a relationship based on on an even ground, you know? Um, and that sounds mm. almost as, as painful or as painful, or maybe it's more painful than what you're talking about around, around alcohol at the beginning because, you know, you're obviously forming very close bonds with these people because you're falling in love uh, as, mm -hmm. as you put it, and, and then it's breaking down mm -hmm. you know for some people you know one breakdown of love of a significant other is, is a traumatic experience within mm -hmm. their whole life if, if that's happening regularly or mm -hmm. relatively relatively mm -hmm. that's really traumatic it was almost a self-fulfilling prophecy as well mm -hmm. because as much as i love the high of falling in love i craved the drama of the breakup and i think after every, no, I know after every breakup, I turn to drink mm. to numb that feeling and have an extreme or to accentuate that feeling because alcohol magnified emotions, right? So it was that craving of that buzz, that continual buzz, mm. high, be it high or low. It kind of makes sense, doesn't it? That those two things would then sort of join together as, yeah. as addiction often, often does. It will, it will, it will bring more hostages to the yeah. to its dark pit yeah is there anything else that joined the party for want of a much better <laughs> well, it's, word it's a free apart from alcohol love uh, and love addiction was there anything else that that then sort of bound to that gambling wow okay. <laughs> the power of three yeah. so gambling and it was quite i was quite a, i wouldn't say a late bloomer with gambling but it worked hand in hand with the drink so there were often times i'd say For three years into my drinking, um, where I discovered casinos. Mm. And casinos were great because they opened all night, all day. There's well, alcohol there. There's, there's women alcohol, in there. There's alcohol. There's women. Right. And there's roulettes, <laughs> you know, and there's no windows. So the outside, again, I was behind, I was behind these curtains and I, I was a role and I remember with gambling, it was the exact same buzz as the honeymoon period of a relationship. I'll say that a bit slower. The honeymoon period of a relationship, that first drink, 
you know, putting the chips down on the table was like me cracking the bottle open. Winning was like that, oh, that first gulp. Losing was the first gulp because it was, again, the extreme high or low. And I wanted more. And the more I'd win, the more I'd want to win, the more I'd lose, the more I'd try and win back. It was the exact same behavior, just a different outlet, really. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, that's mm. almost, I'd love to have you back on, just talking about mm. gambling, because um, can I ask a personal question? When mm. was your last bet? Lockdown. Wow. 2020, and it was online. Because through my drinking, I was banned from a lot of casinos. So I turned, and also it was more convenient to do it online because I wouldn't have to see anyone. But it was, yeah, 2020, I'd say November, December 2020. And your last drink, can I ask you that? Yeah, the 20th of February 2021. Wow. Yeah. And... I hope you don't mind me asking this. This is, well, I've been pretty personal for the last 40 <laughs> odd minutes. Um, Let's get personal now. Yeah, I'm going to get more personal now. <laughs> I don't think it's any coincidence as well, that I think you've sort of abstained from relationships around a similar time. So your last bet, last drink, and abstaining from relationships, mm -hmm. I mean, obviously no one's going to do that forever. I'm sure mm -hmm. that's changed recently. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but it sounds like it's no coincidence that, that you putting certain behaviors down altogether mm -hmm. seems like that's what kind of won the race massively. What happened then? What did you have to put down in order to be where you are today, which is a, a beautiful place to be. I just yeah. met Nicole at the tube and it was like a bundle of joy just coming to greet me. And Ditto. the whole time I've known you, it's been exactly the same, but you know, there's a lot of work that goes on to get there Massive. when you've been to the place you have. So mm -hmm. talk us through that. What what did you have to put down in order to get up? To get up. I love that. That's a yeah. song right there in the making. There I'll get on the phone to one of my singers. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, thank you. Um, my primary addiction, which was drink, that had to go. Because without with the drink, all bets were off. Everything... The, the, the logic, sanity, whatever you call it, went out the window. And that was the biggest thing I tried to protect. So I would go into doctor's surgeries thinking I was depressed. And depression came off the back of the drinking, I'd say, you know. Um, and they'd ask me about the drink and I'd try and protect it as much as I could because it was my oxygen. Oh, and they'd ask how much I drank in a week. And I'd go off of the national average and say maybe a couple of units more mm. in the end of my drinking i was drinking a bottle of brandy a day and um that had to go and i was forced into that i didn't want to let go of the drink and i was forced into that through arrests i was forced into that through wanting to stop the consequences and wanting to get people off my back i didn't want the drink but I want I loved the drink and it got to a point where it took me physically you know I couldn't get up out of bed I needed to be helped into the shower I didn't shower in the end 
I didn't brush my teeth. I'd throw up to drink. It, it got to a point where I physically couldn't take it. But what I would do is I would self de I would detox through an alcohol service, say, um, feel physically better and think, okay, I can do it this time properly and end up where I started. And it was just a repetitive cycle of pain, destruction. It would have taken me to death. Mm. Um, I went into rehab in 2015 and to save a relationship again, a close knit relationship, you know, and, um, it didn't work out that way. We broke up in rehab and I left prematurely and continued the cycle of drinking. So but, you had five years, sorry to interject mm, there. You had five years up until 2020 where you were, I guess, relapsing then. Yeah. So anyone listening to this, who's attempting recovery from, I guess, gambling, love addiction, alcoholism, you're saying loud and clear, don't throw the towel in, keep going. Because, Keep you know, it took, that was your journey. It was five years of, of trying again. Yeah. What an absolute hero you are to keep going. What a survivor you are. Because, yeah. you know, five years of of trying again, trying yeah. again yeah. is really difficult. Yeah. And here you are. And I honestly believe, you know, there were forces involved. There were people, the people that I met along the way, you know, that I, I could relate to, that I saw going through I had been through what I'd been through and come out the other side you know I for the longest time I believed that I was an exception to the rule I will never get sober mm. I will be one of those people that just die this way but something would bring me back something bigger than me and that's what's instilled a lot of faith in me you know and because if it was down to Nicole alone I wouldn't be here you know, it took an army of people. It took an army of faith and it was all encompassing that, that got me to here. Mm. But obviously I had to put in the action in the end. No one could do it for me. And you had to put a lot of things down at once. Yeah. You know, the gambling, yeah. the maybe abstaining for relationships for a while. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and obviously the alcohol as well. Yeah. You know, a lot of the work I do in rehabs, you know, there's, you know, t talk about, this word powerless, you know, and one definition I, I like to use with people is, you know, um, if you can't stop at one, <laughs> then, you know, you're powerless at it. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not powerless over orange juice. I know if I pour an orange juice, I'm just going to have one. You're not going to find me outside a tube station covered in orange. Ryan, <laughs> Get me some Tropicana. <laughs> and of course that is hilarious because yeah. it's orange juice, but often yeah. when it's things like gambling or sex or love or, um, or alcohol, mm -hmm. Person that's suffering with it, it's like, well, it's not that. But if you then substitute that for, for orange juice, mm -hmm. immediately it's it's hysterical because it's absurd. Yeah, it is. Um it really is. And I think it's Einstein that says, isn't it, doing the same thing over and over again, except expecting a different result is insanity. insanity. And that's kind of what addiction's like. Yeah. You you talk about this army of people um that that, that helped you get well, and I, and I think you're alluding to to faith. Mm -hmm. Could you be a little bit more specific? You you mentioned um, an alcohol service. Mm. Is that something that you would signpost people to, their local drug and alcohol service? Definitely. I'd say throw the kitchen sink at it mm. and something will stick. So that's where I began. And it was, I didn't understand that abstinence was what I needed at the time. I went into the alcohol service against my will, um, a unit at 
the one of the police stations I was arrested and brought to took me to an alcohol service in Camden, London. And um, so this is free, right? This is free. part of the NHS. You can just part go to your NHS. local um, drug and alcohol service wherever you live and, and find out where that is. And you can yeah. self-enroll, I believe. Just yeah, go in. based on your borough. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know anything like it existed. Um, or council, if you're looking at outside of London. Yeah. Um, apparently called a council. Oh, okay. It's a weird thing, I know. Ah, learn something new every yeah, day. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah, so I was taken by a unit. Um, and it, the only reason I did it at the time was to get out and drink because mm. I wanted to get out of the police station. So I said, yeah, whatever you want me to do. But it was my biggest turning point because it opened me to a whole world of recovery. So at the alcohol service, there were counsellors, there were different styles of therapy, drama therapy, dance therapy, art therapy. Um, what do you call it? When you put the pins in your... Oh, acupuncture. Acupuncture. Um, and there, were 12, there was a 12-step program there as well. Um, and I didn't know any of that existed. And I also had this misconception of someone that had a problem with alcohol looking a certain way. Mm. And I was so blinded. I was blinded to the, the, the notion of maybe I have a problem. Well, I've known you a number of years and I mm. never would have assumed it, yeah. you know, um, at all, actually. Mm. And wouldn't have even known that you were sad, even, mm. you know, mm. um, on occasion, yes. Yeah. But not not generally sort of, you know, if I bump into you in the street or whatever else. Um, in terms of the bigger picture, and it's something that we haven't really talked about on this podcast. I know faith is something that's really important to you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sometimes there can be an atmosphere that, you know, you can't talk about these things Mm -hmm. or, you know, some people because of their upbringing around religion or spirituality, people just shut down. Mm -hmm. But on this podcast, it's about things that work for the individual. Could I probe you a little bit more about your faith and how it's helped you? Because I think it's really important to talk about. Definitely. So as part of a a 12 step program that I'm a part of, and that has saved my life. Um, a huge part of that is turning to something that is greater than yourself in order to relieve you of your alcoholism or your whatever it is that you you are working on. And um, so I was ble- blessed, uh, lucky enough to have had some sort of faith from a young age, but I had a lot of blocks up because of the fear that I associated with it. I think my first experience of something greater than me was my sister because she had one year to live by doctors and she, God willing today, you know, she, she's 32 and she's still alive. I knew that that wasn't me. So that helped me believe in something bigger than myself. My faith today is spiritual. Um, I do draw from my Christian upbringing a hundred percent. I, pray i use the lord's prayer um but i don't define my faith i don't box it because i think it is it would be quite um egotistical don't know if that's the right word of me to kind of go right this is what it is i think it's infinite and i think my mind my mind isn't infinite so it's forever developing the ultimate thing for me with my faith is if i'm walking in the direction of love and service helping others i'm walking in the direction of my faith Mm. 
whenever I'm going against that or having to justify, explain or excuse something I'm doing, then I'm going against it. And again, I'm putting up those blocks. It's as simple as that. Wow. It's today and it's forever developing like a relationship, but a healthy one. Mm. We definitely need a part two at some point. There's a lot. to <laughs> I, I, I can't believe the time and how it's wow. flown. And, and I know we've only got a few minutes and, I, and I'm wow. gutted because I could, I could talk for hours with you. Um, last question, yeah. just before we unfortunately have to wrap up. Um, how does your kind of ongoing maintenance of mental health, what does that yeah. look like on a day-to-day basis now? Mm-hmm. Obviously, you've mentioned um, prayer, mm-hmm. um, you know, doing the next right thing, mm-hmm. giving back, all of that, which you're doing currently right now. Um, is there anything else alongside that that's kind of, would you say, key for you and in, in keeping the, the ship steady? Keeping the ship steady, asking for help when I need it, and nothing, and remembering nothing's too big or too small to ask. You know, I a big thing of mine was I was so self-sufficient until I wasn't. You know, and and it depowers it. If I have something in my mind that won't shift, you know, I can pick up the phone today and say, "Can I run something?" by you and as soon as I've opened my mouth and discussed it it usually sorts itself out or I get perspective from someone else and that was the hardest thing they say the three hardest words in the English language to use are sorry no and help Mm. help was I would say sorry that was wrong dry (laughs) you know sorry I'd say sorry to the world for breathing you know no still working on that Um, no is a sentence in itself someone said to me which is so true because you don't have to excuse or explain yes and help and I'm learning I'm not there where I can ask for help readily all the time but there's times where I'm like let me just ask because people love to give help as well you know so I've got a a pool of people that I trust um working a 12-step program is my daily maintenance um and that helps me with inventory looking at why I'm thinking this way or what I'm fearful of today or what I resent today so that I clear that channel in order for me to be free and live in the present moment. Meditation. And, well. and doing something like a 12-step group or, or any kind of mutual support or group, you know, you're, you're going to have access to people who are on the same journey, which yeah. I can imagine gives you a, a, an army of people around you that you can turn yeah. to, which is huge. Yeah. And I think this word authentic that you talked about earlier that you weren't able to be, it sounds really now like you are now living that. And, yeah. and you're reaping the benefits, you know, yeah. tell us briefly, cause I know we've only yeah. got a couple of minutes mm-hmm. about this theater project that, that I mentioned at the beginning. And I'll, and I'll put some yeah. links in the show notes about that. Could you just in yeah. 90 seconds? Yeah. <laughs> in 90 seconds. Well, go. go. Tell <laughs> so us a bit about that. Nubian, yeah. Nubian cohorts is a black led theater, women, black led theater, uh, company, which I have co-founded with, others um we started in november last year and we realized that there aren't very many out there um especially working you know touching on really important topics i.e mental health addiction abuse and all of that you know um and we're currently in the process of developing a piece with no name so far but with an ethos of carry on um and what we want to do is just reach like this is in a way, reach those that are going through whatever they're going through that can relate, that need to know that they're not alone. 
And I think through recovery and through being sober today and living an authentic life, I can spill that into every area of my life, you know, in all of my affairs. Through the work I do, I work at a special needs school um, and I can give back. And that heals me. It's a two-way street. If I'm helping others, I'm helping myself selfishly, but not. Um, yeah, I hope that. Made a lot of sense. Thanks. I wish you wholeheartedly well with all your all your new ventures that you're going on. And I'm sure with all the amazing giving back that you're doing, that you're going to be continuously blessed going yeah. forward with everything you're doing. Um, I think maybe in a year's time, six months' time, we have to do a part two. Because I feel like there's so much more to talk about. Yeah. Um, I hope everyone watching and listening to this today has felt as privileged as I have. Nicole has just absolutely spilled her guts to help others. It's incredibly brave and amazing. And I just want to thank you. Thank again, you. Again, Nicole. And um, for those that are watching, listening, I'm just going to do a bit of uh, marketing, which I help, which I hate. So <laughs> if you're on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, make sure you follow, subscribe, auto download. Apparently that's important. Um, do all of that. Tell your friends about it. Um, everything that we've spoken about today, I'll make sure there's links, um, particularly to, you know, alcohol services or, or other services you can you can access. And of course, all those links around your your theater company mm -hmm. and everything else and where you can follow nicole and all of that stuff so um we have a new show every two weeks so i will definitely see you in two tuesdays time if you're listening on launch day um but we are out of time nicole thanks again thank you it's my absolute pleasure it's been an honor thank you it's been been my honor and our honor and um i will see you all in a couple of weeks thanks for watching guys see you soon